invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to the sermon text for this morning, which is found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, as we continue in our series through the letter to the church in Philippi. And as you turn to that passage, um, I actually want to read through to verse 11 uh, so that you can get a sense of, of the context of our verses this morning. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and I will read through to verse 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a Righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Philippians, as we've noted through our series, is the letter of joy, that even though the Apostle Paul wrote it while he was in jail, we see that this word, the form of the word joy, occurs 16 times throughout this letter. And we find one of those occurrences here in our text in the first verse, where we see the Apostle Paul commands us to rejoice. Verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. And what's interesting about this verse is that Paul commands us uh, to rejoice. It's actually an imperative. Um, And this might seem odd to some of us because uh, we usually think that joy is an emotion that uh, comes spontaneously, uh, without our control. Uh, We might think it's an emotion that just comes and goes. And yet, Paul tells us here that joy is a choice. It's a chosen response. And the reason that, that Paul commands us to rejoice, as we see in the text, is because our joy is set upon Christ. Set upon Christ, who is our foundation, a foundation that is unmovable and unshakable. 
Look at verse 1. Rejoice, it says, in the Lord. See, he, he does not say, um, rejoice in your possessions. Our possessions, we know, come and go. They don't last. So to base our joy on our possessions is to base our joy on something that is passing, that is fading, that moth and rust destroy, that thieves break in and steal. There's no wisdom there. There's no lasting joy there. And he does not say, uh, rejoice in your health. Our health is like our possessions. It is passing. It is fading. Our bodies are fragile and frail. We age. We grow tired. We grow weak. We know that illness is a part of life as a result of the fall and this cursed world. Our joy must never be grounded in our health. And Paul also does not say, rejoice in your career. Uh, Even our careers, we know, are unstable. And so it's foolish to base our joy on our work, on our health, and our possessions. See, if Paul was to command us to rejoice in these things, it would actually be cruel. You know, it it would be cruel because, again, these things are passing, they're fleeting. And yet we know, sadly, that so many people seek after these very things for fulfillment. But look at verse 1 again. The command is that we are to rejoice in in the Lord. And the way we do that, loved ones, is we do that by receiving and resting in Christ alone and not in our present circumstances, not in our possessions, and certainly, as we said, not in our health. You know, we can thank God for for these things, for possessions and our health and careers and our families, but we're not supposed to set them as the foundation of our joy. These things are fleeting. The Lord gives and the Lord takes them away according to his wisdom and his good pleasure. The Bible says instead the only solid, lasting thing that we can and must rejoice in is the Lord, is in Christ. He is our immovable and unshakable foundation. He has granted us eternal blessings, eternal, lasting blessings. And Paul explained in chapter 2 of Philippians how Christ granted us these eternal blessings. They were granted to us through his humiliation, that he veiled himself in flesh and lived in perfect obedience to the law. And he suffered the curse of the law for us. He actively and passively obeyed all that was required of him. And then after his humiliation. He was exalted. He was raised from the dead. And he is now seated at the right hand of God. And so through his own humiliation and exaltation, we have now received blessings in him, in our union with Christ. And so to rejoice in the Lord is to rejoice in what is lasting and what he has accomplished and what will last forever. There's a hymn in our Trinity hymnal titled, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. And one of the stanzas reads, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts, Thou Fount of Life, Thou Light of Men. From the best bliss, bliss means joy, right? that earth imparts. And the hymn here is referring to the things of this world, the things that earth grants uh, to us. 
through uh, God's provision. We turn unfilled to thee again. These things do not fulfill us, and so we are constantly turning to Christ because we know that he alone can fill us. He is the only foundation of our joy. And notice what Paul says in the second half of verse 1 after the command for us to rejoice in the Lord. He says, you know, to write these same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. He acknowledges that he's repeating himself by bringing again up the subject of joy in this letter. He's already mentioned it. Again, it's mentioned 16 times throughout the letter, and so far we've seen it already a few times. He's mentioned it in chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. He says that he rejoices in the fact that Christ is proclaimed, even though some people were preaching Christ uh, out of the wrong motives. Paul still found reason to rejoice in that. And he's already described the joy that he has, despite the fact that, again, he's in jail and he's possibly going to uh, be executed. He doesn't know what the outcome of the trial will be that is before him. And Paul even invites the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 18, to rejoice with him, even in the midst of his circumstances. Likewise, you also should be glad and and rejoice with me. And Paul, in our text this morning, says, and I'm going to bring it up again. I'm going to remind you to rejoice. We might say, come on, Paul, what's with the repetition? Well, he explains, he says, it's no trouble for me. I'm not hesitant to bring this point up over and over again. In fact, he says, it's safe for you. It's a safeguard for our faith that he repeats the gospel over and over. The good word that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Loved ones, we, we need to hear this over and over, even as Christians. We need to hear that, that, that gospel, that good news, over and over. This is a safeguard. We don't hear it and then move on to something better or more important. No, what we see in Scripture is that it needs to be repeated to us, that the gospel is for Christians too. Our temptation, we know throughout life, is uh, to move toward uh, a works righteousness mentality, right? That we are somehow deserving, that we merit salvation. And hearing the gospel over and over, that it's not by our works, but by Christ's works and by faith in him that we are saved, it's a reminder to us that it is by grace alone. So our temptation is to move toward works righteousness. You know, our temptation is also to despair because of sin often. In our struggle in sanctification, sometimes we feel like we are going to be overcome, overwhelmed by our own sin, by perhaps our own sorrows. And the gospel, the reminder that we are sustained by grace through Christ, that, that places us again back on that foundation. We're also tempted to neglect the grace of God in Christ. The writer of Hebrews warned about drifting away. It's that image of a rowboat that's not tied to a dock. It slowly but surely just floats away from its current location, right? And hearing the gospel draws us back to Christ, to that firm foundation. See, loved ones, hearing the gospel week after week and in the preaching continually calls us to recenter ourselves upon Christ, on Christ who alone is the foundation of our faith, who alone is the rock of 
our joy. And it needs to be repeated to us, we see in our text, because of, we might say, the joy stealers who come in the form of false teachers. As Paul now issues a warning in our second point, beware of false teachers in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, who was uh, Paul warning the Philippians about? He was warning them about a group of people known as the Judaizers. And these people uh, believed and they taught that in order to become a true Christian, in order to, we might say, be saved, a man had to first be circumcised. And uh, this is because uh, Gentile converts, before they were able to uh, become Jews, they had to be uh, circumcised. right? And so it, it naturally followed in the minds of some that in order to become a Christian, well, one first had to go through those same steps. They had to receive the sign of the old covenant to be received into Abraham, and then and only then can they be received into Christ. And actually, the early church wrestled with this issue at length. You see in Acts chapter 15, um, it's known as the Jerusalem Council, where the early Christians uh, discussed this very point. In Acts chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, and listen to what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. They're going to discuss it. When they came to Jerusalem, verse 4, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. If you keep reading through the chapter, you'll see that after uh, much discussion and debate, they were searching the scriptures and being led by the Holy Spirit. The understanding was, after all, that the old covenant laws were fully fulfilled in Christ, that he did it all. He fulfilled those ceremonial laws. And Peter uh, summarizes in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. So the matter there was settled at the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. Circumcision is not required for salvation. It's not required in order to become a Christian. And it seems like the matter should have just ended right there. But what we see instead is that the issue continued to plague the church as people who rejected the decision, the Jerusalem Council, continued to to teach this. And so the Apostle Paul is continually having to deal with it in many of the churches that he had planted and that he was uh, overseeing. Uh, The Apostle Paul, for instance, deals at length with this issue in his letter to the Galatians. Paul teaches that in Galatians that to require circumcision in order to be fully accepted into the Christian church, it undermines salvation by grace alone. 
through faith alone and in Christ alone. Completely undermines our doctrine of salvation by grace. And he explains this in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul is pointing out here that you can't pick and choose from the ceremonial laws that you want to keep. If you want to keep one, you keep them all. Continuing in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. See, the emphasis there in Galatians 5 is that Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law. And what we have now as the Christian church is we have baptism. Baptism, which is the sign of the new covenant, baptism which replaces circumcision. The Apostle Paul, we see, he was passionate about emphasizing this salvation that is by grace alone, not by works of the law. And we see it in our text this morning, his passion and how he describes these false teachers. And he uses, we see, three strong metaphors, each, we see, beginning with the phrase, look out, in verse 2. He first says to the church, to you and me, look out for the dogs. Now, he's not referring to... uh, like cute house pets that we might think about. But he's referring to uh, mangy street dogs. And uh, in the Old Testament, actually, the people of Israel were known as the children of God and uh, that God was the father of Israel. And it was common, therefore, amongst many in, in Israel to refer to Gentiles as dogs because they saw themselves hey, we are the children of God. These Gentiles are outside of the covenant. And so they view Gentiles as being unclean. That's why sometimes, you know, they had to wash their hands after touching them. And so they were associated with uncleanness, like the the dogs that roamed uh, Palestine. And in our verse this morning, Paul turns the tables on them. The dogs, he says, are in fact those who pervert the gospel by requiring circumcision, by perverting the truth of God's word. They are the unclean ones, the ones who are outside of God's grace. Why? Because they are seeking a salvation by works and not one that is by grace alone. Then he says, look out for the evildoers. He describes those who change the gospel as evildoers. Literally, it's evil workers. Those who teach that physical circumcision is required in order to be right with God, Paul says they are evil. You know, Jesus used the same strong language to describe the false teachers that he faced. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Jesus said to the religious leaders, Woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I want to ask you this morning, do you feel like Paul's language and Jesus' language is maybe a little too strong? Politically incorrect, perhaps? Loved ones, we need to have this same kind of passion for the truth, for upholding the pure gospel, because these are eternal matters. This is why Paul is so passionate about what he's teaching. These are matters of eternal life or of eternal condemnation. They are of central importance. And you and I need to be just as zealous for the true gospel. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Thirdly, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul's emphasis here is that, again, circumcision is of no religious value. If someone does it thinking they're going to be right with God through it, Paul says, you know, that's merely mutilation. And uh, this actually harkens back to uh, the incident in the Old Testament with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You might recall that as the prophets of Baal were calling on Baal to send fire from heaven and he wasn't responding, they started to cut themselves, started to mutilate their flesh. And Paul is hearkening back to that and saying, you know, by, by commanding circumcision, you are teaching something as false as those prophets of Baal, something that is as, as worthless as those uh, prophets of Baal were teaching. So what is the answer then? And what do we turn to? Paul says, instead, what we need to turn to is the pure gospel. We see this in verse 3, that we are called, brothers and sisters, to put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in works outside of our trust in Christ. Verse 3, we read, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. As we are granted faith by the grace of God, the working of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, we are the circumcision. It's really interesting that Paul uses this phrase. He includes himself, along with the believers in the church in Philippi, the church in Philippi that was composed mostly of Gentiles, men who were not circumcised. And Paul says, me, a Jew, I was circumcised, we'll read later, on the eighth day, according to the law. And you, you are also the circumcision, even though you haven't received the sign of the old covenant. He says, we together are the circumcision. Why does he say that? Well, it says he, he says that because he's talking about the common ground that's between them, which is their commitment to the pure gospel. The Old Testament teaches this very thing, this very thing that our faith is not displayed outwardly in our bodies, but it is shown by God's work in our hearts. It's not our physical features that God most cares about, is what Paul is emphasizing here. We read this very thing in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where Samuel said, do not look, when he's speaking about Saul, the king, do not look on his 
appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And while God, we know, commanded circumcision as an outward sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, you know, that outward sign was meant to point Israel to the inward reality of what God was doing on their hearts, of true inward faith in the Lord. But what we see is that over time, the Israelites began trusting in the physical mark on their bodies. And they felt that their election was secure simply because they received that mark and so they started to stray after other gods. They started depending on these external things that were merely supposed to lead them toward spiritual realities. And we would liken it today, and we can liken it today to a person in the church who was baptized. And the person, you know, saying, I've been baptized, so I know that I'm saved, got my ticket into heaven, right? And now I'm going to go live like a pagan, or I'm going to join some other religion in order to find greater fulfillment. Loved ones, with such an attitude, baptism is of no value. Because we know that in reality, baptism is a sign, again, that points to the inward reality, the inward reality of being washed by the blood of Christ and the work of the Spirit in regeneration. So what Paul emphasizes here is that in the new covenant, see, God has circumcised our hearts. He has worked in our hearts by his Spirit to conform us to the likeness of Christ. And he did this, loved ones, by the Holy Spirit when we were regenerated. When we were born again, when we were brought to newness of life. You see this in Romans chapter 2, beginning of verse 28. Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And Paul now chooses in our text three characteristics that define true believers, that define those who are circumcised of heart. We see in verse 3, we are the circumcision, first who worship by the Spirit. The Spirit at work in our hearts, as we've said, works in our hearts to regenerate us, works in our hearts as we are being sanctified day by day. He indwells us. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. He said to the woman at the well, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The spirit that he grants, the spirit that leads us in the true worship of God. Paul says the same in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So a true believer has the spirit. A true believer, secondly, is characterized by his boasting in the Lord alone. He says, and they glory in Christ Jesus there in verse 3. 
Now that word glory, at root here, it refers to boasting, right? To showing pride. And uh, we're familiar with this word because it's often used in a negative sense in, in the Bible. When uh, people glory or, or boast in their own good things or in their keeping of the law or their own good works or in their keeping of the law, Paul talks about people boasting in their wisdom in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But in this passage, Paul uses it in a positive sense, in a good sense. He talks about the fact that true believers boast in Jesus Christ. We are proud of being known as Christ followers, of being known as those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We rejoice again in these things. We are excited to tell others that we have been saved by grace and that they too can be saved by grace. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul explaining how we are to boast in the Lord alone, to glory in him alone. God chose, he says, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. And thirdly, a true believer is characterized by, we see, putting no confidence in the flesh. One who puts no confidence in the flesh. And confidence here has the idea of entrusting yourself to something. And Paul emphasizes here that we must not entrust ourselves to anything outside of Christ. Loved ones, this is one of the defining characteristics of true faith. Who do you trust in? Paul calls us, scriptures call us, to put our trust in Christ alone. He is our rock and our redeemer and the source of all true joy. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in drawing us yourself. We thank you that we are your children. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts and minds, drawing us ever closer to yourself and drawing our desires more and more away from the things of this world. May the boast of each and every person here this morning be in Christ alone. For it's in his name that we pray.